I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is Nebraska, and this being the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary of the state's admission to the United States of America, this is going to be a special two-part show. The first part of the show will feature Taylor Keene and Timothy Shaffert, and then the second part of the show will feature Chris Summerick, the ED of Humanities Nebraska. This is part one of the Nebraska-themed show. With me in dialogue are Taylor Keene and Timothy Shaffer. Timothy Shaffer is the author of five novels, most recently The Swan Gondola, an Oprah.com book of the week. He's an associate professor of English at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Hello, Timothy. Hello. Taylor Keene is a full-time lecturer at Creighton University's Haida College of Business and a tribal citizen of both the Omaha and the Cherokee nations. A graduate of both Dartmouth College and Harvard University, Taylor is presently the author of Rediscovering America, a work on ancient Native American history and culture. Hello, Taylor. Good to be with you, Stuart. When I say Nebraska, what comes to mind? (laughs) <laughs> absence, <laughs> absence, that's the way <laughs> Well, sort of, I mean, it does yeah. um, you know, I grew up on a farm And so those were some wide open spaces And big skies So um, so I guess that's that's sort of what comes to mind Is my, my childhood, strangely Considering that I've lived here most of my life There's an episode of South Park where they're they're driving from Colorado, where everything is just beautiful and and the nature is beautiful, and um, and then they drive into Nebraska and it's brown and and everything's dead and bland, and that's not. I mean, I've driven from Colorado into Nebraska and vice versa, and that's not what it looks like out there. I mean, it's beautiful. It's it's um, it's gorgeous territory. So it's yeah, it's it's wide open, um, and. You know, the untrained eye might not <laughs> recognize the beauty in it, but um, but it's 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 stunning land in western Nebraska. You said the untrained eye. So does that mean that you know Nebraska does have a beauty? I think every landscape has a beauty if you can have the patience and the um, the aptitude to look for it. But but what does a trained eye, or, or rather, what does it need to train an eye to see the beauty in Nebraska? That stretch of I-80 is uh, famously uh, deadly, you know, because it's a long drive. So if you're trying to get from one place to the next, um, you might judge more harshly than if you're um, if you're out there actually to witness and, and enjoy and, and study. And then you do, then you will notice the, the wildlife and the colors and uh, the, um, the nature that and, and and not just that, but like the character, you know, the, the little towns and um, the decay in some cases and uh, the the houses in the middle of nowhere and and what they suggest and the stories that seem to, to rise from um, people settling in this uh, territory. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind as a member of the Omaha tribe is that's one of our words, but it's being said incorrectly. Nibaliska. It means uh, flat water. It's our word for the Platte River. And so for me, um, I I view all this land with a different lens. I see a world that once was here, vast plains and lots of bison and deer and 
elk and wolves and so that's where my imagination always takes me. I know, Telly, you are and have been studying these ancient cultures, Rediscovering America is the title of, of your forthcoming book. And so what did Nebraska look like? Maybe we can think about what it used to look like, perhaps, and, and take a historical lens before we maybe come on to what it could look like going forward in the future. So maybe describe something of, of the past. Sure. Um, I've been doing quite a bit of work with um, good folks down at Fontenelle Forest about rediscovering what th- those landscapes look like, but certainly oak savannas, not as many um, invasive tree species, lots of long grasses, blue stem, um, like I said, the, the oak savannas, and then uh, out in western Nebraska is where the bison herds were. So I know that uh, the historical Omaha tribal hunting grounds are basically out by McCook, but I just, um, I'm always fascinated at just how much the terrain changes from east to west, from up around the Ponca country, around the Niobrara River, running waters all the way to um, near the Colorado border, and it just changes so dramatically. Um, I would love someday to see massive bison herds back in this state again. I've been told that uh, that might be inconceivable, but I will never give up hope to see those things return. There were uh, indigenous peoples here, and they were here long before the sort of pioneering expansion of um, sort of European settlers spread across the land. And I know that you're a citizen in many respects connected with these tribes. And I wonder if the way you look, Taylor, at the cultural landscape of Nebraska is shaped very much by that heritage. Absolutely. Um, for the most part, most of the tribes that you mentioned, and we were uh, later coming here than, say, the Pawnee, who have arguably been here for 1,500 years until their expulsion uh, in the 1850s down to what was Indian Territory, now Oklahoma at the time. But um, in, in my research and my, my travels, uh, I've often made that trip out to Denver, and I, I, there's, I always go by the Buffalo Bill place and stop and full of memories, and there's good coffee in Gothenburg, and then you get out towards Scotts Bluff and Garing, and it's stunningly beautiful. Uh, but as, as I'm going through all those places, and oftentimes I'll stop in Kearney too, um, there's one of the, the Pawnee uh, Sacred Corn Project is out there too. And uh, I, again, I just can't help but seeing the, the world that once was out there and uh, just to try to imagine this, this landscape without all of the cement and uh, asphalt and steel and construction and to see these massive bands of the Rikra and the Pawnee roaming these territories. There were Cheyenne out in western Nebraska as well at a certain point and just across the river, of course, were the um, Iowa's. And so the, the, the lens for me is very powerful. Um, one of the thinkers that has really inspired me was... Um, Vine Deloria Jr., who was uh, from Standing Rock, and he's now since departed, but he left so many ideas um, that have influenced me, especially in this work that I'm trying to get finished with the book. But uh, he speaks of a relationship in between um, the earth and 
human beings. And it comes down to basically there's a relationship between the land and the bone and the bloods of our ancestors. I've spent uh, quite a bit of my time uh, through Humanities in Nebraska and portraying Chief Standing Bear of the Ponca. And that whole story was about their trail of tears down to Indian Territory and the subsequent um, loss of a daughter, a granddaughter, and his son, primarily to TB. But uh, his dying son's wishes were to have his bones returned um, because he felt like the the land wouldn't know him down down there. And that's prompted me to think a lot about and do a lot of research is what is the nature of that relationship? And uh, um, Vine uh, wrote about several uh, Native American leaders historically who had interesting thoughts on that. And that's really stuck with me. And that's how I, I view this landscape. Um, he was re- recounting uh, the words that uh, Chief Seattle had when he was being coerced into signing away the treaty lands at the Treaty of Walla Walla. And in the 1880s to around 1900, there was a strong prevailing thought that Native peoples were going to become extinct, and certainly a planned eradication of the, of the bison was a part of that. And uh, basically, the Indian agent was telling him that, was that uh, you all are going to be gone anyway, so sign the treaty. And I paraphrase his retort, um, when I'm gone and you're gone and our children's and your children's children think they're playing alone in the woods, they will never be alone because me and all of my ancestors' spirits will always be here in these lands. And so in most cultures, we, we think about having uh, a soul, a spirit, that is animate of sorts. And if those teachings are true, that's how I see this landscape. I see Pawnees and Arikaras and Iowas and Otos, and, and they're wanting their descendants to come back to be a part of the land. Maybe there's something to the, our bones and blood being in the ground and the earth recognizing us. Because I think there's something powerful in between um, all these ancestors, these spirits, knowing this land, knowing this place. And, uh, but we're in a time of prophecy for Native peoples, and it's really basically a time of spiritual enrichment. And so um, hopefully that beauty can be shared with everyone. What does the uh, prophecy foretell? Well, this is the era of the seventh generation, and so it's really a prophecy from the Dakota people. And um, in our early, early stories of our old religion, uh, which is now referred to as the Red Road, the Way of the Pipe, so Sweat Lodges, and the Sun Dance. Those were brought um, to indigenous peoples um, by um, the white buffalo calf woman, so you know, the image of a white buffalo calf coming and a, a bounal bison and then morphing into a woman who carried wooden pipes with um, pipe stone has red ochre in it, <clears throat> beautiful carving stone. And it only comes from one, one place in the world. And she brought us those and brought us songs and the teachings. That was the beginning. And then somewhere around the time of European contact would be the beginning of six generations of suffering. And uh, Lord knows that most indigenous people have suffered greatly. And then with the, with the 
markings uh, would bring back this era of the seventh generation. And the markings were the successive birth of uh, four al albino bison. And uh, the first one was in 2001. That's so where I started my teaching career out at uh, University of Colorado Boulder and where I met Vine Deloria and a lot of these other thinkers. And by 2007, the fourth one was born. And uh, I happened to have the luxury of writing um, academic work with a Dakota legal scholar. And she's the one who explained it to me. Because I remember um, when the fourth one was born, we were in the law library down at Tulsa University, and I came bebopping in excited because I saw somewhere online or something that the fourth woman was born and, and I was excited and I and I asked her, so this means the time of the seventh generation and she nodded. And I said, so the, with the fourth one it begins the prophecy and she nodded yes. And then I got kind of carried away in my uh, exuberance and said, so that means we're the seventh generation. And she chastised me and she smacked the table. And says, no, you fool. She called me a fool and said, we're the sixth, and you're supposed to be a teacher, and you don't know all your stories. Uh, and that's the point that I started all of this work and uh, really understanding what was the past. And the, the hopeful part of the prophecy uh, for us as Native peoples, it says that that seventh generation, they're going to be the ones that will lead our tribal nations to stand tall again. And uh, equally, if not more important, is going to be their work uh, for all those children born after that are for the non-Indigenous side. They're the ones who are going to be ready to hear our teachings and our wisdom. Um, and I believe that's about uh, the preservation and protection of Mother Earth and a steward of all of her resources and that we began to treat her like a mother and not to have dominion over the plants and the animals, our brothers and sisters. Thank you for all that you have been to me. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. You are wondering how I love you. Listening to Lives. With me in dialogue are Taylor Keane and Timothy Schaffer. 
This year, 2017, marks the sesquicentennial, the 150th anniversary of the state entering, uh, being admitted to the United States. So this is a celebratory year, but clearly there's a lot of history for us to learn and draw from. Within that, uh, I'm going to quote a blurb about your book, Timothy Swan Gondola, is a lush and thrilling romantic fable about two lovers set against the scandalous burlesques, midnight seances, and aerial ballet of the 1898 Omaha World's Fair. And so on the one hand, we have this native experience, and on the other, we have scandal and the sordid. So I'm kind of wondering if, if you might explain a little bit about um, your research and a little more about that um, sure. feature of Nebraskan history. Yeah, I mean, it was it was the Trans Mississippi uh, uh, and International Exposition, um, and so it's uh, and it was in recognition of um, of, the, of the Western states, and and of course, uh, tragically, so much of its rhetoric and its design hinged on. Um, this celebration of the victory of the white man, right? So it was, um, so that that was the nature of the speeches on the opening days, and um, and how uh, you know that the white man took the land from the savages, and 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 we're building it into, you know, we're making progress and and building cities and and bringing civilization, um, and um, and so it was a lot of militaristic rhetoric that was the. You know the language of the day, and so it. So those two million people, or nearly three million people, who attended the exposition, we don't want to think of them as as bloodthirsty and um, you know historically revisionist or anything. We, uh, but it was just that was their concept of 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 their experience and their their um, their family history, and uh, that somehow this was that this all belonged to them that this was, that they were the rightful heirs of this land and um, and so there's this whole uh, fair that was um, built in, in celebration of that but also of course built to entertain and to um, and to, to bring music to to Nebraska and to um, acknowledge and celebrate its its art and its politics and um, its its industry uh, its agriculture and they had um, the Indian camp, you know, and where they and and they had the, the photographer Reinhardt who captured studio images of the members of the of the tribes that uh, were in attendance, and um, and but there was also a lot of pressure for for them to perform uh, in the way that the white people wanted to see them perform, and so um, and so. The, one of the interesting developments was that there was also so there was the Indian camp, which purported to be kind of this anthropologically high-minded endeavor, uh, where um, where people were invited to see uh, life as it was, uh, the vanished life, and uh, and then down at the other end of the midway was the the um, the Wild West show, and uh, the Wild West show, which had actors and were were performing a kind of uh, fictionalized history, um, that was where the that was where the money was. That was where the attendance was. And so eventually, the Indian camp started uh, mimicking and mirroring the 
the fictional approximation of history down the road, the more entertaining version. Um, and so there, it was. So there was a lot of. It was. It was kind of funny because there was the, the Grand Court, uh, which um, had exhibits devoted to art and to science and to technology and um, and uh, new businesses and government. And then there was the Midway, which was basically just these uh, vendors who would move from fair to fair. And so, and they would bring all the the bad element with them and attract the bad element and and so people people were speaking out against the midway but it was it was that was the main attraction that was where the people wanted to hang out and that's where you could you know drink beer and and cavort <laughs> and um and so it was is it interesting it's, it's an interesting kind of uh, uh multiple personality going on there these were the events that um people attended because they wanted it, it felt like it linked them to the rest of the world um, in a way that nothing else did and so they could become they could get close and personal with um, uh, with the future in a sense and the past um, in a way that they couldn't in their own communities perhaps but it was also a, a, um, a, a pale facsimile to the Chicago <laughs> Columbian Exposition, um, which was, I mean, when you're talking about the World's Fair of the 1890s, you're really talking about the Chicago World's Fair. The Omaha Fair was kind of referred to colloquially as, as a World's Fair, but, um, but it was really the exposition. Nebraska is 90% Christian, a variety of denominations, and uh, 9% non-religious. 1% other religions, so I don't know how that plays into um, any of our sense of how spiritual the state is or not. Um, I could easily see why some things would be censored or banned. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I grew up churched, you know, I, um, and uh, most of the people I knew did, most of the kids in our town. It was very an influential element of the town. Um, but you know, within Christianity, as you say, you know, there are any number of churches and denominations, and um, and as a result, a lot of hatred and infighting just there. You know, that um, uh, that's why I, I, I sometimes we, they talk about um, these religious liberty laws or whatever that 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 are sort of designed to save or, or, or to protect businesses that don't want to do um, business with uh, gay people generally or, or transgender people and so you can you know the, the idea that if you don't want to bake a wedding cake for a gay wedding then um you shouldn't have to but um but i i don't know that gay people have as much to to fear from those religious liberty laws as just other religions you know the lutherans versus the catholics <laughs> it's um there's it that it's usually at that kind of level of pettiness that those disagreements arise so so yeah so i think there is yeah there's um certainly these especially small communities thrive on church life and depend on the generosity of their community members and um you know church is vital to the survival of a community and um and building trust among people and and uh, loyalty and all of that and um, but it can also be uh, destructive. Yeah. I'm wondering if you might speak a little bit, Timothy, just about the the literary heritage of Nebraska. Oh sure. I mean, you mentioned Willa Cather, um, and of course, in, in her work too, in writing about the land, she writes about from time to time there'll be a line or something about the the farmers. Uh, 
pulling the life, you know, from the land and bringing life to the land and um, without any acknowledgement that, that the land, <laughs> that other people had lived there before them, you know. And, um, and so, uh, and so, yeah, so she, you know, she, uh, Willa Cather's the, the, um, the one most closely associated with, uh, with Nebraska, I suppose, and also, I mean, um, somebody who in many ways is very mysterious. I mean, she, they've published her letters, you know, but for the longest time there was a sense that there weren't any because she encouraged everybody to burn them, you know, and, and um, uh, it's believed that her, you know, her final manuscript, uh, or it was, it was promoted that her final manuscript was, was, was destroyed, um, unfinished, but uh, that, that's turning out not to be quite true either. So, um, so she's provoked a real fascination, I think, for for scholars and readers. Taylor mentioned sort of how different the western part of the state is, and and I think western part of the state, I think, sod houses, and oh, that sure. makes me think about old jewels and oh and, yeah. <laughs> yes, old jewels <laughs> and Mari Sandoz, who was a great, yeah, she was a best-selling author in her day, um, also controversial. You know, she had uh, her books were banned by the army in the 1940s, I think, um, for uh, being too sensational or something like that. And so, but she, um, um, I don't. I mean, there's certainly Mari Sandoz scholars across the country, and there's attention to her work from time to time. But, um, but I don't know that uh, we're still reading her books too much. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Baby, I, I just want to hold your hand. Maybe then you understand that I love you so. And when these feelings do arrive, make you want to touch the sky, never the same again. Oh my gosh, I love you so.
And Taylor, you said something earlier. You mentioned sacred corn and the sacred corn project. And of course, Nebraska is very much a an agricultural state. And, and I think when people think about Nebraska, you might think a lot about agricultural product. But the agricultural product that we think of now, I think, is very much more an industrialized and narrow version of that. So what is sacred corn? Well, it's certainly something that I've gotten to know a lot about in the last few years, I'm trying my hand as a backyard farmer. Um, I really became interested, uh, one of, again, one of my mentors out from University of Colorado Boulder, Dr. Deward Walker. He's the chair emeritus of the anthropology department out there. It was about 10 years ago. Um, he said, young man, what are you doing to protect your corn? And I said, my corn? What corn? Your tribal corn. And I said, um, protect it from what? Knowing full well that most of the tribes, we had lo- lost connections with lots of that. And uh, he was describing to me the situation in uh, India with the farmers and some of the big seed companies and how they had basically co-opted all of their seeds away from them and got them hooked on the the industrial variety. And uh, that patent law in America was actually protecting their ability if they cross-pollinated to their corn, then they now owned it. And thus I understood what he was talking about and was flabbergasted that that could happen and began my explorations into it. And uh, now 10 years later, um, having embarked on my own sacred seed project here and uh, learned how to grow all these, I've uncovered a lot of this history. Um, Corn basically is um, probably out of Peru in its origins and began to... um, change with the human hand probably somewhere around 10,000 years ago, much like wheat uh, has done and rice has done for other populations around the world. And then uh, there was an explosion in Mesoamerica somewhere um, after that. And certainly here in North America, uh, was an explosion again that went across all the tribal peoples somewhere between 1,000, 2,000 years ago, so relatively new. And if you're looking at it from that time frame to, to see the origins of um, the seed companies that were here in Nebraska, part of my uh, travels um, as the historical in- interpreter of Chief Standing Bear, I found myself with uh, Chris uh, uh, Summerick, Executive Director of Humanities Nebraska, had, uh, and one of the performances for Chautauqua with them made my way out to the Fur Trader Museum because they supposedly had seeds and thus began to uncover a very uh, interesting story about um, the first big seed company that came out of here. And um, George Will was the gentleman's name and uh, had documented all these encounters with the tribes as they would come and trade. Um, and at that point, all of the tribes were between 75% and 100% economically self-reliant on the excess sale of corn alone. So that gave me a model for the vision for the future of that we could be self-sufficient again. But then uh, he had a number, and one of my students, uh, Creighton, was gracious to allow me to have a couple classes on it, and I got help. And one of my students discovered in the history of how that first seed company from the seeds that he had gotten from the tribes. And, um, of course, they would sell everything by mail order back in those days. 
And so you'd get these catalogs, and she found all the covers of them. And the first few years would show, say, uh, Mandan or Hidatsa women, um, elderly women teaching the young ones these songs and how to thresh it and how to um, care for it and make sure that there was always plentiful supplies of it. And um, by around 1915, there was a cover that was very telling. And on the one hand, it had a Native American squaw corn on this side, and then it was interbred with some of the ones that he had. So it was the George Will White number or whatever it was, and thus began the cultural appropriation of um, corn away from Native peoples to the point now where people see real corn, and they say it's decorative and inedible, but that's real corn. Uh, those are usually popping corns and the different varieties. And we fast forward to what a lot of the other secret seed projects are doing today. And it was the Pawnees that really inspired me to want to do this. They had uh, kept their historical corn, but it wouldn't grow down in Oklahoma where they were um, transplanted to. And so somewhere seven, eight, nine years ago, they found people out in Kearney to grow it. And uh, the author, Roger Welsh, had given them a plot of land and... Um, asked them what they wanted to do with it. They said, we want to plant our corn, and we want to have our dances here. And uh, I've been blessed to be around both the projects. But some of these uh, varieties of these sacred corn are amazing. The Pawnees, um, they have a blue variety, which is really kind of a purple aubergine. Um, uh, it has a little golden star on each kernel, and uh, the morning star is the symbol of the Pawnee. And if you can just imagine these beautiful purple corn with little golden stars on each of the kernels. They also have a spotted eagle variety, which is a, a white varietal that has the little Pawnee star in black on each of the kernels. And uh, just amazing. There's, there's something very spiritual and mystical about doing all this stuff. I said, anyone who's been around me when I'm singing to my corn or we're doing our ceremonies to plant, and there's something about back to the earth and uh, understanding the phases of the moon and the songs that we sing and and uh, what used to be in my backyard has turned into a garden come or a jungle come <laughs> July or August. But it's, um, you know, and, and and I'm hoping to be able to reestablish these varieties and um, working with uh, Paul Kulik this year uh, from Le Bouillon to uh, hopefully reinvent a ceremony that all the people here and, and Omaha can um, enjoy someday, but doing a proper Thanksgiving at the, at the Harvest Moon. And so um, celebrating uh, the food that can come from the land here. And uh, we'll probably be using bison and wild game, hopefully some elk this year too. I, I hadn't necessarily, you know, thought to, you know, this would, this would be a connection, but it seems as if... Um, there's this jumping off point for today, reconnecting to the past to move us to the future in a, in, in a better way. So reconnecting back with old spiritual traditions yeah. around something very tangible, um, and that's sacred corn. And you mentioned Roger Welsh, and, and we've been talking also about literature too. And I, I'm thinking, is there something in the past that is representative um, in contemporary literature in Nebraska. And I'm looking at Timothy Polly because, of course, you've been running Omaha Downtown Lit Fest, and it, it has the word Omaha in it, but it, it's a statewide, if not a national, 
um, event, and I can attest to its popularity and also to the caliber of the quality of it as well. And I'm just wondering if there is anything happening in today's Nebraska literary scene of any sort that maybe harkens back or pulls from the past in some way. Oh, absolutely. And first, I, I need to correct my, it was not Sorghum Hill by Mari Sanders is Slogum House. But you can you can sense my confusion, I'm sure. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so actually there's a couple of new books out. Um, one is called World Chase Me Down by Andrew Hilleman, um, which is about a turn of the century, um, what was kind of then known as the crime of the century, about the kidnapping of um, the child of... Uh, um, a slaughterhouse proprietor, I believe, and um, based on a real case. And I, I think it was uh, one of the things that the case became famous for is that um, they paid the ransom, which was uh, um, which is a little bit of a spoiler alert, I suppose, in the book. I can't remember exactly when they re when Andrew reveals that particular story, but it's a very vivid account. It's a first-person narrative of this um this career criminal and um, uh, it's part lament and part celebration and just really very poetically written and and reads at the same time at the same time it reads like pulp fiction you know with the with the crime and and um, and just the the portrait of, of of Omaha at the time which is so rich I mean when I was working on the Swan Gondola, you know, you'd get up in the morning and, and because you could go to the Library of Congress website uh, and look at the Omaha Bee newspaper, you could actually see a facsimile of the paper itself. So you could actually, you're looking at the page. And so instead of reading that day's newspaper, I would read that day's newspaper in, in 1897 or 1898. And um, it was just fascinating uh, uh, for a million different reasons. Um, but, uh, but also partly fascinating for... Um, for the advertising, you know, which seemed to tell a somewhat different story than the than the reporting, you know, than the stories that made the front page. There was um, you you learned so much about um, the concerns of the people of the day, which really paralleled um, our concerns today. So often with health and vanity, you know, and um, entertainment, and um, and so the, the uh, and you and it was just reading those newspapers. A world came alive that. I was completely unfamiliar with, and it was rich and strange and um, and startling, and uh, and you just wanted to take everything and put it all in the book. You know, is is uh, it was hard to resist just uh, um, leaving any of these strange details behind because they were so provocative, and uh, and there was also the sense that, well. You know, there haven't been a lot of novels about turn of the century Omaha. If you live in New York, you're writing a turn of the turn of the century novel. You're you're competing with some of the big ones, right? Like uh, Ragtime or, or something. But um, but the, uh, so there was this also a sense of like, well, I, I want to get it right, and I want to um, to use the best details I can, and to really uh, capture the rich element and and the world that I that's. Um, um, stirring up my imagination, and uh, and you can see that in in Andrew's book too, where there's uh, that almost alien world that's that's being portrayed, um, particularly among his characters who are living right on the the fringe, you know. Um, 
and uh, and Ted Wheeler, Theodore Wheeler, has a book coming out uh, in August. Uh, King of Broken Things is the title, and that's that's uh, set a, a few years later, um, kind of a World War One era, um, Omaha, and deals with uh, race relations in the city and um, and uh, the the different communities living together and. Um, uh, trying to live together and uh, in competition with with each other, sometimes literally so, uh, in a baseball game that that serves as a central um, setting for the book. But uh, but clearly, I mean, this is um, I, I think uh, it's it's exciting to delve into the history and find material that you know has not been in fiction before, and you can do that with a, a novel about the historical past of of Nebraska in a way, like I said, that you might not be able to with so much with Nebraska, uh, with the New York or, or San Francisco or Chicago. Um, although those cities had far more people, so there's potentially far, far more stories to, to unearth. You are listening to Lies. We'll be back after the break. Well, there's nothing you can do. Well, there's nothing you can say. Cause everything just ain't gonna go your way If you're feeling kinda strange And you wanna lay it down And it's hard for you to keep your feet on solid ground You better keep on Keep marching Keep marching You just gotta keep on Oh yeah Keep marching Keep marching on Keep marching on listening to lives with me in dialogue are Taylor Keane and Timothy Schaffer you know we've plundered the past and uh, but if if past is prologue um, maybe we don't want the past to be prologue so what is a vision for the future of Nebraska 
<laughs> you met with silence. More absence. <laughs> More landscape. <laughs> well, it's a, I mean, it's, that's, that's the funny thing because I, I feel like one of the things that has always enticed me about the city of Omaha is how it seems like it's always in a state of reinvention. You know, it's all, there's always talk about um, new projects that need to happen or, or, or um, new efforts and new design of the city and um, uh, questions of, of upkeep and and questions of restoring, you know, re preserving its history and its historical um, sites and buildings and such. And so it's always, it, it seems like, maybe this is the way it is with every city, but it just seems like it's constantly stirring in this sort of um, uh, anxiety about its own identity <laughs> in a way that I think might, I've always thought was unique to Omaha, you know, that um, it's a city that's, for all the years I've lived here, has felt like it's it's always on the verge of, of being one of the serious cities. And I think it is a serious city, obviously, but, um, but it's also... Um, and, and that's what captivated me about the Trans Mississippi Exposition because it was always going that that event was just always going to be in the shadow of Chicago's event, and you know Chicago's event had twenty million people and um, Nebraska's had had two million, and so it was like um, it was uh, it, everything was so much larger with the Chicago event, and there was just a somewhat um, reduced version, you know. In Omaha, but they tried. You know, they they worked so hard. They wanted so much for the exposition to do for Omaha what it had done, what Chicago's had done for that city, and so to me that that kind of struggle has just been a character of the city. It's just like it's in its blood. You know, it's it's um, uh, always trying to to fix itself and and improve. And my silence was a pause and a deep breath. <laughs> Because <laughs> uh, my my vision would probably be more radical and in a different direction than what most would see. Uh, <clears throat> for one, again, I, I have this dream of uh, somehow using my mind as a strategy professor in economics and business and trying to figure out some way that some of those vast tracts of land out west could host um, a tall grass prairie with massive bison herds that I think people would come from all over the world to see. And on top of that, uh, again, I've been blessed with this book project to be able to do lots of explorations. Uh, but um, mine has taken me to interesting places that I've begun to go backwards and study. And the one that comes to mind is uh, Pahuk, which is right outside of Fremont. And it's a privately held piece of land and pretty much a secret and a mystery to most, although slowly people are figuring it out. And it was uh, one of the five uh, sacred geographies to the Pawnees. Uh, Omaha's had a word for it as well. But uh, Pawhook was one of the five um, places where the Council of Animals, the, the Naharuk, is what the Pawnee called them, uh, of where the Council of Animals would come together and uh, could choose to confer their medicine powers uh, onto deserving individuals. And uh, it's the, the, the place of, um, of emergence for the Pawnee people. And so in the old stories, it spoke of that uh, this land was first populated by giants. And then the uh, creator uh, created a flood to exterminate them. And he put the Pawnees and the Rickeras underground. 
and then at a certain point, um, sometimes they refer to her as the yellow buffalo woman, and sometimes I've heard mother corn from some of the stories, but she led all the animals out of this emergence place, and it was at Pawnee, at Pawhook. And uh, to the untrained eye, back to that conversation, um, may or may not realize the beauty that's there. It's, um, for the most part, it's, it's a high bluff, a flat high bluff, that's uh, overlooking a meander of the of the river, and um, it was once said that there was a very uh, powerful medicine man who was uh, resurrected and saved by the animals, and they taught this young boy all of the uh, the medicine powers from the animals and returned him to the to the Pawnee. And at the center of all of this is um, this geography. There's a number of mounds that are there, which defy um, understanding right now at this point. Some of them are effigies. Some of them are archaeoastronomy to the stars. Some are probably um, aligned to tell us movements of the moon, the sun. Um, but at the core of everything is a tree of life. And um, when the Pawnees were removed in the 1850s, um, there, was, there were some young young boys uh, that were brought back in their uh, later adult years by an early anthropologist. And when they returned back to Pahuk, he was able to tell them exactly where it was, and he tucked them to this tree. And he, they asked him what it was, and he said, it's the tree of life. But the, the reason it was uh, so important for him to go back to it is, he said, because this tree will remember me from when I was a boy and therefore will remember us as a people. And uh, so to me, that's, that's what the future is going to look like here is that we're uncovering all of these different uh, magical, sacred geographies that were once lost and now refound and hopefully can be uh, inspirational for many people. Any favorite pieces of ephemera that, uh, that you love about Nebraska? The good Reuben. Supposedly it was invented at the Blackstone and other cities try to claim that from us, but it's almost as good as Kool-Aid. Maybe a Kool-Aid with a Reuben. Uh, I've always had a lot of affection for Red Cloud, Nebraska, um, which uh, is where Willa Cather grew up, and uh, they're actively preserving the the fact that she wrote, or you know, not, didn't necessarily write about these places, but they 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 entered her fiction in interesting ways and that there's there's uh, there's bits and pieces from her stories and from her novels that you can visit and you can look at. And it's such a curious exchange, you know, that, um, that you, and, and then they'll have like a little write-up next to it that, that quotes uh, where something might have shown up. Like they, there's this, uh, what I love is this um, Turkish uh, um, music box Um with this doll, and uh, and it and it shows up in in um, in her novels, and it's um, but you you can read about it, and um, and the description is rich and it's exact, uh, but when you look at it, it somehow it's just not the same thing. I mean, it's just like there's something about how she could take something, and yet it became the character's own thing as well. And so um, and so these efforts of the town to really 
pay tribute to her work by uh, resurrecting these 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 buildings and and these these artifacts. Um, you know, it's it's an interesting. Um, I, I don't want to call it a disconnection, but I guess an interesting connection between the two as you try to fathom um, the reality and and the fiction that she created. With me in dialogue today have been Taylor Keene and Timothy Shaffer. Thank you both for being here. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure, Stuart. I think it might have been you, Timothy, that told me about the Willa Cather quote about everywhere else in the world. Uh, no, no, the sky is the roof of the world, but oh, in sure. Nebraska, the, the, the landscape is just the floor. I think she was. She did. Willa Cather did write that, but I think she might have been talking about New Mexico. But I'm not for sure. <laughs> I'd have to. I'd wrong have to, show. So right. it's, it's a right letter of the alphabet, but wrong show. It could be applied nicely, however. <laughs> Maybe she was thinking of Nebraska. <laughs> That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.